Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. I'm Gemma Ware in London and this week I'm joined by my colleague Mend. Hello, I'm Mend Mariwani, one of the producers of the show and I'm in Mexico City. And this week we're asking what's behind the rise in digital nomads. So these are people who travel the world as they work and how are governments responding to them? Mend, you've been based in Mexico City for a few months now. Uh, I guess the big question is, do you consider yourself a digital nomad? Um, actually, I don't. And that's because I consider myself to be a long-term resident. The digital nomads that I've encountered here are people who tend to just stay for a couple of months maximum, and then they go on to other countries. Okay, but regardless of whether you consider yourself a digital nomad, Mexico City is actually well known as a hotspot for them, isn't it? That's what I've heard a lot. I mean, people tend to speak of Mexico City as the place to be if you're a digital nomad. And I actually went to an area called La Condesa, which has a really high concentration of co-working spaces and cafes that advertise themselves directly to digital nomads. And I spoke to some people there to try and understand what draws them to the city. My name is Katya from Moscow, and I'm a custom director. Yeah, I work remotely. I, I'm still running project with Russia sometimes, but I was hired in Mexico City as well. So I'm working with, with both countries right now. How long have you been working remotely? I've been working remotely six years. Wow, quite a long yeah. time. And what was the initial incentive? Um, I forced it. <laughs> Actually, I need, I need connections around and it's easier to make connections when you're not trapped in, the, in, in one place. Sometimes I, I meet people from my industry in cafe and, uh, you know, it's like you're just sitting and uh, outside eyeing somebody and you're like, oh, wow, you work in the film industry. And he's like, yeah, I do. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's like one more connection. Uh, my name is Diego. I'm from Spain. I'm 27 years old and I'm here in Mexico City working for a Spanish company. I've just done one year here. And um, what was your initial sort of incentive for going abroad? Why did you go abroad? At first, it was like the opportunity to grow in my professional career and also uh, inside the company I, I work for and to live this, this experience, to live in a foreign country, to meet new people, new experiences, new culture, new food, new travels. That's the, the part I, I like the most. Do you have a lot of friends who work remotely like yourself? Do you like, have a network of people? Mm, Tragically for myself, no. But I, I think there's a lot of digital nomads. My name is Erica. I'm from Finland. I've been living here for seven years now. So I work for a US-based company, and that's been the case ever since I moved here. And... um. It's been the same for me. Nothing has changed, really. I've just noticed that a lot more people have come in since the pandemic started, have, you know, remote workers from the U.S. or Europe and so forth. And when I first moved here in 2017, there really weren't as many. But now it's definitely, you see, you see a lot more. What was your own incentive for doing that kind of work remotely? Um, well, my thing actually was that I, my visa in the U.S. was running out. And since my work was always remote, even before the pandemic, our company was, we had, you know, workers everywhere. So I figured, well, this, you know, Mexico is cheaper. It's it's great weather. You know, I had a connection with somebody here, so I figured we're well here. 
So, Men, when I was listening to that, I was struck by the fact that these people have been here for quite a few years. I mean, like you, they feel connected to this place, even though they're remote working. Uh, so what's different about them and you? Well, actually, I was really surprised as well when I spoke to these people. I think most people would have imagined that digital nomads just come and stay for a couple of weeks and then they move on. But really, it seems like the reality is that people just feel a lot more invested in the place, just like myself. And yet, in recent months, there's been a lot of complaints about rising rents and living costs and just how digital nomads are possibly or potentially impacting on the place they live in. And for this episode, I wanted to find out what real impact digital nomads are having on so-called hotspots like Mexico City and what it means for the people who live there. But also, how are governments responding to the phenomenon? But first, I wanted to understand what exactly is a digital nomad? So there are many ways of categorizing digital nomads, and it's a tricky and imprecise science. I'm Dave Cook. I'm an anthropologist at University College London, and I'm running a research project on digital nomads. You may remember, Dave, from an episode we ran last year about hybrid working after the pandemic. Go back and check it out if you haven't already heard it. A big part of Dave's research in the past decade has been on digital nomads, and he's been visiting cities in Thailand and Indonesia that have been particularly popular amongst them. In Thailand, the main digital nomad locations are Chiang Mai, Bangkok, and some of the islands such as Koh Lanta and Koh Phangan, Bali, Indonesia, and some other locations. The market and consumer data site Statista did an online poll earlier this year surveying roughly 170,000 digital nomads. It found that the US was the top destination for digital nomads, followed by Thailand and Spain as the second most visited countries. And while there isn't much data available, it's thought that 76% of digital nomads are white, 30% of them have a US passport, followed by passports from Portugal, Germany and Brazil, which make up much smaller percentages. Dave says while digital nomads can work in any field or industry, a key characteristic is how they organize work around their mobile life. My simple go-to definition is people that work whilst traveling, as opposed to people who travel for work. But they're also a very mixed group of people in terms of what they do. When we use the term digital nomads now, it's important to understand that they're not a homogenous group. So if you look back to 2015, when it was still very much an emerging lifestyle, um, and there were fewer numbers, it was easier to just to lump them together um, and talk about digital nomads as this kind of quite exotic, extreme type of remote worker. But one of the things that's happened since the pandemic is digital nomadism as a lifestyle has become more mainstream. The pandemic and the normalization of remote work has certainly given the lifestyle some legitimacy. While there are overlaps, he says that there are differences between digital nomads and remote workers. Actually, digital nomads and remote work are quite distinct practices. And it really does take a unique set of motivations and skills to want to work on the move. And yes, many more people can work at home or work whilst visiting family, but it isn't quite the same as digital nomadism. That means the work digital nomads do needs to be the kind of work they can do from anywhere in the world irrespective of time differences and location. And that work can be divided into three different categories. The first category is freelance knowledge workers, freelance computer coders, graphic designer, technical writers, language translator, any kind of knowledge work, really, that could be done asynchronously, remotely, or in a solitary manner. And the second category 
are the nomadic entrepreneurs. So these are people who have set up or are trying to set up a business that is borderless and be run and operated anywhere in the world. So the stereotypical business um, here are small businesses like travel blogging. And in the early days, this was the idealized digital nomad job. And of course, more recently, this has all tipped over into areas such as social media influencing. Another typical business activity is e-commerce. And in my most recent article for the conversation, I talk in some detail about dropshipping, which is um, sourcing a product from um, a supplier and shipping it straight to the customer without actually seeing um, the product yourself. And then the third category and I think that this is the most overlooked category with digital nomads. And these are aspiring um, digital nomads. So people that are trying to set up um, in this way of working and living. So these are people who often don't have a job that allows them to fully work remotely, but they're looking to forge a career that fits into the digital nomad lifestyle. I often say in talks and in my research that 90% of the aspiring nomads um, I've met give up on the lifestyle within the first year. While there are many reasons why people might decide to become digital nomads, Dave says one of the factors most cited is an unhealthy work-life balance and the daily grind of life in an office. If you go to a digital nomad conference or read a blog, the most common reason that's given in surface-level conversations are, you know, I'm rejecting the office, um, you know, the daily commute sucks. Um, if you look at digital nomad social feeds, it, you'll see posts about the joys of swapping a hammock with the misery of commuting on the New York subway or the London underground. But when I get deeper into conversations, uh, objections around other parts of um, office life emerge, being micromanaged, presenteeism, the bureaucracies of office life, they all kind of like emerge. I can remember early on speaking to a, a German woman and she told me that she really objected to the fact that she was very productive and she used to go into an office every day and leave on time at five o'clock and all of her other co-workers were on Facebook but judging her um, that she was leaving on time and they were kind of like performing staying in the office and she really hated that kind of office culture. Because the majority of nomads are from the US or European countries, another reason they often cite are rising living costs. So if you take rents in global cities like London, Paris and New York, they're out of reach for many who are starting out on the job ladder. So why would young talent want to leverage their skills and go to lower cost countries? And I hear these stories time and time again. Some of the people Dave's interviewed have more personal reasons for upping and leaving. Sometimes um, broken relationships are often um, cited as a trigger. Those are the kind of things that um, some of my research participants um, share with me. And increasingly, people move from higher cost Western countries um, to get away from their parents. A lot of people are still living at home. And I've had a lot of candid conversations with female nomads who travel to escape the expectation and restrictions of overbearing and conservative families. Um, you know, I've spoken to people from the UK, from America, from South Korea, who've all expressed motivations to want to travel and work. Um, they have good jobs, but they're stuck at home. Others see living in a cheaper place on a higher income as a way to kickstart their business ideas entrepreneurs who are trying to bootstrap a business um, often talk about 
um, that being too hard in places like San Francisco or London, because if they're having to pay rent in those um, global cities, they're oftentimes having to work different restaurant jobs. Um, if they can save up some money and go somewhere like Thailand or Medellin in Colombia, where the cost of living is lower, they're leveraging those differences so that they can spend some time to create a minimum viable product or you know, to create some kind of prototype that they can then take back and put in front of angel investors. So I hear that story quite a lot. So the reasons are quite varied. And I can imagine for that reason, the places digital nomads travel to are also quite varied. But are there any specific characteristics that draw digital nomads? The first thing that digital nomads always say um, is they've got to go to places where there's um, fast Wi-Fi. Um, and fast broadband connections. I mean, I've been in co-working spaces where, you know, a young entrepreneur has been at the front desk complaining about the lack of high-speed broadband or there's been an interruption in connection. And when those kind of things break down and people are working with clients or um, they're trying to get a project done or they're trying to ship something, they get very, very agitated. So <laughs> that's the first thing. There was a, an internet meme doing the rounds in 2015, 2016, which had Maslow's hierarchy of needs and somebody just scribbled fast Wi-Fi, you know, at the bottom. Fast Wi-Fi is something I think people all over the world need uh, who are working from home. But I guess sometimes digital nomads might need to search out for it a bit more. Is that right? Well, yeah. And a lot of the people that I spoke to said that they wanted to work outside of home just to kind of be surrounded by other digital nomads. And that's why fast Wi-Fi in a cafe is often high up on their list. This demand, though, for things like fast Wi-Fi or, you know, nice coffee spaces, this kind of infrastructure that is kind of being built around digital nomads, is it having an impact on particular neighbourhoods that they're heading to? That's what housing activists here in Mexico City have been saying. So they say that the arrival of digital nomads is really exacerbating inflation and it's transforming their cities, their neighbourhoods, and it's sort of creating these expat bubbles. Basically another way of saying that digital nomads are gentrifying these neighbourhoods. That's exactly what I wanted to find out. How are cities like Mexico City changing? And how much does this really have to do with digital nomads? So I took the metro to the Metropolitan Autonomous University to speak to someone who's been studying the gentrification of Mexico City in detail. Thank you very much for the opportunity. My name is Adrián Hernández. I'm a researcher at the Metropolitan Autonomous University in Mexico City, where I'm the head of the sociology department. My work focuses on gentrification and more recently on urban tourism. Adrián has focused in his work on how Mexico City has undergone gentrification in recent years. He began thinking about gentrification as an undergraduate student in the early 2000s when heading to the La Alameda, that's one of Mexico City's central squares. Today the square is lined with jacaranda trees and long promenades, and it's very popular as a romantic spot for couples. But he says 20 years ago, the crowd was just a lot more eclectic. When I was studying for my degree in human geography, I would go to the historic center and see what will come to mind as part of my research. Once, I was walking through the Alameda of Mexico City, 
which at that time was a totally different park than it is today, with people from different classes and backgrounds intermingling. That caught my attention and I began to study the urban transformation in the city. Since then, there have been radical changes in parts of the city that were previously inhabited predominantly by lower-income residents. And he names four factors that characterize this process. We aren't talking about gentrification unless the four following processes take place. The first is economic investment, whether public or private. So there is an attempt to economically reevaluate the area. An investor will look at the area and say, well, this is a part of the city we are interested in. The second element is changes to the urban landscape. So this means the appearance of new shops and new patterns of consumption. The privatization of street squares, the aspect of bringing in security and police. The third aspect is the arrival of new inhabitants with higher incomes than those who already live there. These are almost always middle-class people who want to move to this new part of the city. And fourth, the displacement of existing residents from lower-income backgrounds. I think it's very important to be clear that without these four elements, we cannot speak of gentrification. Amongst the areas most aggressively gentrified are La Santa Maria La Rivera in the center north and Joco towards the south of the city. And he says residents feel the impact in a number of ways. The first thing they see is how the price of land increases. Your landlord will suddenly tell you that they've raised the rent. Usually the law in Mexico says that the rent can only go up with inflation. The rules are rarely enforced and short-term rentals don't have any restrictions at all. Residents will also see rising costs for everyday products, including food, the price of electricity and water. In Mexico, the price of electricity and water depends on the area you live in. Meanwhile, your salary isn't rising that rate, right? And then, also, you'll be annoyed by loud parties, parking problems, and the privatization of the streets, meaning people are suddenly unable to access certain parts of the neighborhood. And eventually, when people are pushed out of neighborhoods, it causes disruption in communities. You are going to lose your neighbors as a result. The spaces where community life takes place and community members come together are lost. And this generates anxiety, depression and emotional problems. Eventually, you lose that link you had with your community and the connection and love you have towards the place you live in. This all has a real impact on our emotional and daily life which is something researchers of gentrification or urban studies often don't pay much attention to. I asked him to what extent these changes have to do with digital nomads that come here to work and live in Mexico City. It's a good question. On the one hand, I think that gentrification differs from the touristification of an area because gentrification implies the substitution and change of neighbors. In the process of touristification, you don't know who is occupying the apartment next door because tourists arrive and stay for a couple of nights and they don't develop any direct links to the neighborhood. So there's no lasting relationship and on the contrary, tourists often impact neighborhood life negatively for that reason.
Your short-term neighbors will have parties, make a lot of noise, you suddenly see vomit on the stairs, people having sex in the street in front of your balcony. So as a result of tourism, all the issues end up deteriorating. And instead of contributing to the social fabric of the neighborhood, tourism ends up breaking and fragmenting social relations. When I think about the field of digital nomads, they seem to be in an intermediate position because they don't come just for a week, but they stay for a few months. Digital nomads tend to spend more time in cities than tourists, but they still have very specific needs that are different to those of long-term residents. And Adrian isn't just referring to co-working spaces and cafes with good Wi-Fi. Uh, on the one hand, there's the issue of scale. These neighborhoods somehow have an adequate size that allow digital nomads to move in and inhabit an area relatively fast. That means that they are able to walk everywhere and access services quickly. In areas popular with digital nomads, you can get around easily by foot or by alternative means such as by bike and inline skates. So that's often an aspect that makes an area appealing, especially because digital nomads don't want to have a car. They just passing through and prefer to use public transport. So if they can get around by foot, even better. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, the host of Gate Crashers, a new eight-part podcast from Tablet Studios about the hidden history of Jews and the Ivy League. We'll look at the anti-Semitic policies that were invented to keep Jews out, from quotas to admission interviews to legacy admissions, policies whose echoes still reverberate today. And we'll look at the ways that resilient Jews made these schools their own, despite those who would thwart them. You'll hear interviews with students, faculty, and alumni, bringing you stories that will blow your mind. Subscribe to Gatecrashers wherever you get your podcasts. I've been to Mexico City, albeit quite a few years ago now, um, and I know it's got lots of very distinct neighbourhoods. So are there areas of the city that have been particularly popular among digital nomads who've come to work there? Yeah, so there are two areas that are called La Condesa and La Roma, and they're both really popular amongst digital nomads. So these are the areas you went to have a chat with people, right? Yeah, exactly. So there are lots of cafes here that where people who are digital nomads or remote workers where they're hanging out. So does that mean that these neighbourhoods specifically have gone through gentrification because of that? Yeah, so when I asked Adrián about La Roma and La Condesa, he said it's not actually that straightforward, and that's because those two areas were never really inhabited by lower-income residents on a whole. And I wanted to take a moment here to tell you about the history of these two neighbourhoods, because it's really fascinating. The story starts in the mid-1800s. After Spanish colonisation... Porfirio Díaz, who was the president of Mexico and basically a dictator, from 1876 until 1911, redeveloped the capital. And he did this based on France's capital, Paris, which to him symbolised progress and just a lot of good things. He first turned the Paseo de la Reforma, a major road that crosses the north of the city, into a French-style boulevard with trees and huge monuments and statues. And he also created new colonias or neighbourhoods such as La Roma and La Condesa. These are the two neighbourhoods that we just talked about, with which he wanted to attract wealthy nationals, European families and investors. They were neighbourhoods that were created for, let's say, the petty burgeoisie of Mexico City. They've never been popular neighbourhoods populated completely by poorer sectors of the population, so therefore 
I wouldn't speak of gentrification in a strict sense. If we go by Adrian's definition of gentrification, he says that the area hasn't seen poorer residents replaced by rich residents, but there still have been massive changes. What I do see there, and I play with the term gentrification, is a process of super gentrification. In the sense that the wealthy middle class inhabitants that lived in the area are now experiencing the pressure of rising rents. Nuisances from new inhabitants, such as younger people and often people from abroad, who find these areas the ideal place to live. This can be seen in the transformation of public space. The element that these two neighborhoods, La Roma and Condesa, have in common is public space. They have walkable streets, parks, well-kept squares with adequate landscaping. And another thing that is linked to that is the privatization of public space through consumption. What I mean is that you can sit uh, in a restaurant with outdoor space to have a beer, for example. Today, La Roma and La Condesa have some of the highest concentration of coffee shops and restaurants in the city. In 2010, in this district, there were 1,091 food establishments, restaurants and bars registered. And by 2022, this uh, has increased to 1,207 establishments. Well, that's not a huge increase. He says if we compare that figure to the number of restaurants in other middle-class areas in Mexico City, it's clear just how many there are. On the other hand, if we think about an average middle-class neighborhood in Mexico City, like Portales, we find that in 2022 there were just 279 food establishments. That's four and a half time less restaurants, bars, and other business. In other words, the accumulation of food establishments in La Roma and Condesa is brutal. Obviously, that makes it attractive to groups such as digital nomads. So, men, from what Adrian's been saying here, it sounds like digital nomads aren't strictly to blame for the gentrification of Mexico City. Yeah, totally. I think it's a lot more complicated than that. Gentrification is caused by a combination of richer residents replacing poorer residents, tourism, as well as digital nomads. And a lot of it has to do with what kind of consumer and resident you are. So that means where you buy your groceries, where you eat out, and who you interact with, essentially. So digital nomads, when they arrive in cities, I guess, are kind of feeding into these wider trends that are happening. But... When they do arrive, they are still a new presence and people complain about them a bit. So what are governments doing about it? Yeah, and I think that's a really important question. And I spoke to someone who's been studying exactly that, how governments have been responding to digital nomads. So my name is Fabiola Mancinelli. I'm an Italian anthropologist based in Barcelona, Spain. And my specialization is tourism and travel culture. And thanks to this, I got to study digital nomads. Fabiola is professor of social anthropology at the University of Barcelona. My research has been going on for quite a few years now, since 2016. I have been watching over this few years, a digital nomad community of over 800 members. And then in person, I have conducted approximately 50 
in-person interviews. As part of her work, Fabiola has also been analysing the way governments in 27 countries around the world have responded to the arrival of digital nomads. Governments have been quite slow because there is a fundamental ambiguity in the digital nomads. They blur the line between tourism and migration. Uh, Speaking from the institutional point of view, there is not a category for the digital nomads. They fall in between. It's just a lifestyle that blurs the two things. After the pandemic, countries saw an opportunity in digital nomadism. Governments suddenly realized that digital nomads could be very beneficial to their tourism battered economy. So they are perceived as a niche of high quality customers, high quality visitors, high quality consumers. And this is why many countries started to create special visa programs in order to attract this niche of travelers. And they're using two different strategies to lure in digital nomads. So there are many different countries who try to attract them, varying from island states in the Caribbean like Anguilla or Barbados and then Belize, Dominica in the center of uh, in Central America, but also European countries like Croatia uh, and then Georgia uh, on the other side and Iceland, Germany. So there is quite a variety, quite a broad spectrum. We identified two main typologies of countries jumping on this train. On the one hand, there were tourism economies, countries who were already developed in a touristic point of view and wanted to revive their uh, industry in the aftermath of the pandemic. And on the other side, uh, countries that were not so relying so much on tourism, but were more interested in talent retention and were more interested in heightening the country competitiveness. Fabiola says that's because countries using the second strategy aren't just interested in any kind of digital nomad. They're specifically interested in appealing to highly trained and qualified talent with their visa programs. So these two broad typologies have two different ways to approach the potential uh, newcomer. Uh, On the one hand, for example, the tourism economy, they are very appealing with slogans that go like uh, work where you vacation or come and work from paradise. So there are many hedonistic escapist references and a lot of uh, emphasis on the amenities that the countries have to offer. And then on the other hand, there are the countries, mainly in Europe, that want to boost uh, the competitiveness uh, of the country. Their web presence is much more um, dry, reduced to a page of nuts and bolts and information and not so many slogans and uh, possibly also much more complex bureaucratic procedures. But there is one thing all digital nomad visa programs have in common. is expectation of self-sufficiency. Receiving countries expect digital nomads to be middle class. Uh, They have privileged passports. They come from affluent countries. In order to apply for these visas, have to prove that they have a minimum stable income, in some cases very high. That's because of the passports they hold and the kind of work governments assume they'll be doing. As knowledge workers, they are expected to have a certain level of education. They also have to have a proof of health insurance. So if you think about it, these people have to come with everything ready. Another thing that unites these visa programs is that they exempt digital nomads from taxes. 
Fabiola says when the term digital nomad was just starting to emerge in the late 1990s, two researchers called Sugiyo Makimoto and David Manners published a book called Digital Nomad. In it, they argued that countries could try and take advantage of these newcomers by taxing them. They said that nomadism would erode the power of nation-states and will bring nation-states to compete to have citizens who can pay taxes. But that's not the case today. If we put a critical analysis on what is happening, one of the promoted perks to apply for these visas is tax exemption. Because one idea is that they don't pay income tax if they stay, let's say, for whatever the, the special visa allows that is over three months in most cases. She says countries are exempting digital nomads from taxes because they're increasingly viewing them as potential consumers rather than citizens. You know, they just have to come as in-resident consumers. They are expected to have a high purchasing power. So it's a kind of depoliticized vision of these people, you know, because they are not expected to come to participate in local life, just mostly to consume. It's not just governments trying to capitalize on digital nomads. When I spoke to Dave Cook, he told me that there's a booming industry looking to cash in on the trend too. The activity around digital nomads is proliferating. Co-working spaces are perhaps the biggest industry section to emerge. And I'm not really talking about the likes of WeWork. I'm more talking about small independent co-working spaces that are set up or designed um, for digital nomads. One initiative that's recently emerged in response to the rise of digital nomads is called Plumia. Plumia are funded by a digital nomad travel insurance company. And given that travel insurance is historically being marketed for people on short holidays, and often tourist travel insurance has a limit of 30 days cover, travel insurance was an obvious gap in the market. So that's kind of like how Plumia and Safety Wing, which is the company that is funding that project, are trying to market to digital nomads. The company essentially promotes the belief that people shouldn't be tied to one country. And Plumia's plan is to build an internet country for digital nomads that would allow them to travel freely. It's not quite clear how it's going to do that or how governments would react to the project. I think uh, now that digital nomadism has become more mainstream, I wonder what's going to happen. I think it's going to be a very interesting time in the next 18 months to see um, you know, how the lifestyle matures. When I interviewed people for this episode, I set out to answer the question to what extent digital nomads are to blame for the changing landscapes of cities from Mexico City to Bangkok. And it seems there just isn't an easy way to answer this. A point Fabiola made that really struck me was that digital nomads are basically just reacting to the increasing costs and failures of our societies in the global north. And they do this with whatever tools and privileges they have that are available to them to improve their life. I think that digital nomadism is a creative answer to structural failures and the casualization of labor, rising living costs, etc., etc. So they find an individual exit strategy to structural problems. And in this sense, they can do so thanks to practicing geographic arbitrage. What she means by geographic arbitrage is the ability to live in one place where the value of your income is higher 
because of the difference in value of currencies around the world. So rather than looking at digital nomads as the cause of inequalities, she says they should be seen as a symptom of historic inequalities. This idea that you can stretch the power of your salary or of your pension by going and living in a country uh, with lower living costs. This is fantastic and it works on an individual basis, but it's only allowed because of global inequalities and long history of dependence and colonialism and etc. So if we look at the big picture, we see that uh, in this growing phenomenon that we have ahead, there are like some history and hidden reasons that should be acknowledged and uh, investigated. And that's especially pertinent when looking at how countries are attempting to entice digital nomads with strong passports. So these are passports that allow them to travel the world relatively easily. But it's often very different for people trying to migrate to these countries from the global south. By studying special visa program, we see how states, nation states are behaving uh, like enterprises. They are creating categories of desirable aliens they want to attract, yet the same states at the same time are making the life of labor migrants or refugees impossible because they are not giving them access to the country. So we see that by looking in contrast at the different programs and how nation states manage migrations at large, that we can really see the classist and racist criteria that are at work also in institutional policies. So essentially there's a two-tier system, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And this is what I find striking. Also, if uh, a migrant is overstaying their visa, it will be deported. But if digital nomads or privileged migrants overstay their visa, very likely the state will come up with a program that will benefit them. We find we will make an exception for digital nomads. The same exception is not at stake for other kinds of migrants. So it seems to me that governments really do have a role here. So if a city is changing, if neighbourhoods are gentrifying, yes, it might be to do with digital nomads, but it might just be part of wider trends. So governments really need to understand that they also have a responsibility, not just to attract these high spending digital nomads, but to the people who live in these cities already. Yeah, there's a real double standard here. On one hand, governments want to attract people on a higher income to come and spend their money in these cities. But on the other hand, they're keeping migrants out and they're completely absent from regulating what impact those richer people have on poorer people who might already be living in the city. And I think when we talk about responsibilities of digital nomads, those elements are often missing from the conversation. Okay, that's it for this episode. You can read a recent article that Dave Cook wrote about his research into digital nomads on the conversation. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. We've got a few people to thank, Rachel Waldorf and Robert Litchfield, who I spoke to about digital nomads, and to the conversation editor, Mike Hurd, for his help with this episode. This episode of The Conversation Weekly was reported and produced by Mend Marawani. Alberto Alvarado did the voiceovers of Adrian's interview in Spanish. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens and our theme music by Nita Sal. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor. Alice Mason runs our social media and Soraya Nandi does our transcripts. And I'm Gemma Ware, the show's executive producer. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio 
on Instagram at theconversation.com or email us at podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and The Conversation by going to donate.theconversation.com. I'm Ed Marouani. Thanks for listening. <laughs>